Yo, what's up guys? So this was a super fun episode with Alex Grant. He previously co-founded Lilac Solutions, which is one of my favorite lithium brine extraction companies. And now he started Jade Cove as a consultant to these mega battery supply chain companies. We discussed the future of geothermal brine extraction, what technologies are most needed for the future of the battery supply chain, direct lithium extraction, and more. So just a quick sponsorship message, and then we'll get right into the episode. Enjoy. Okay, Alex. Yo, what's up, man? Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, Jack. Um, so yeah, pleasure to be here. I, I don't think I have been um, on TikTok before, so this is exciting for me. Well, this will also be on YouTube, so okay, well, there. Yeah, it always ends up, YouTube YouTube is like the collector, right? It always, everything ends up on YouTube eventually. But it's just, it's funny because I, I'm usually trying to communicate with boomers, really. Like, and if anything, most of my, most of my interactions on social media are on LinkedIn which is actually quite lit, I have to say. Yeah, that was funny lot, when you were telling me that. Yeah, well, why old, is old people, lit? Old, people, old people tend to know things, right? It's, it's, it's a correlation, not a causation, right? But old people tend to know things. So if you want to talk about big, important things in kind of material ways, the, the old people on LinkedIn are, are happy to share their opinions. Like the retired guys. They'll comment oh, okay. on anything. They're not on TikTok. They're not on Twitter even, you know? So yeah, I, I think I, I, I like to be on LinkedIn because I like to befriend and build a network with people who have a lot of experience in big capital projects and, you know, understand that stuff deeply. But, um, but I think sampling from different, you know, age groups and cultures and, and nationalities and all different types of people is super important for coming up with new ideas that are that actually work. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's like Twitter, Twitter's also, you know, becoming, I would say the better version of LinkedIn. Maybe it's just taking time for those people with the experience to actually age in on Twitter. Maybe. Yeah. Perhaps. I feel like Twitter has a bit of a fatal flaw though, of kind of toxicity, like X Twitter, like blue checkmark X Twitter. Those kind of people are super smart. And they're doing interesting things usually, but they're also really gross and like obsessed with themselves. Usually mm. it's not a rule, but it's <laughs> yeah, an blue check mark is definitely not where you get the information, the real good information and the good jokes and the good memes. To the me, memes. it's the second yeah. order effect of, you know, I don't follow uh, Washington post Twitter account, but then the good accounts that I follow will retweet those or quote tweet them with a funny joke or start riffing off of that. And that's kind of how I get the news. That's Twitter. Yeah, yeah Twitter definitely has the best memes, 100% agreed. And uh, but something I'm kind of doing right now is bringing Twitter memes to LinkedIn. So now that's going to upset some people. Yes. I'm sure it will. It feels but like you're swimming upstream. <laughs> but if it doesn't upset anyone, then it's literally not worth doing. So, so have you had a meme do well on LinkedIn? <laughs> have I had a meme do well on LinkedIn? So I, I really at the early stages of, of hard tech, like energy tech, me, like memography, I would say. So I've really just started in the last couple months, partly because partly because Elon has kind of made it okay to make memes about anything you want, right? Um, For sure. And I noticed there's there's definitely this like white space in the meme kind of literature, if you will, around energy technology, right? There just aren't a lot of really high quality memes around energy and materials and 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 like chemical industry and this kind of thing because all the people who know a lot about those things are on LinkedIn, right? Where there's no memes. So so yeah, so mixing those that those gene pools of kind of people kind of produces those types of new memes. And yeah, so I'm working on them. I will I will tweet some of them un undeniably, but 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 more than anything, it's not necessarily like the meme picture that counts. Mm -hmm. It's it's thinking in terms of memes, 
right? Mm -hmm. And and really like that's just a, that's just a reformulation of 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 presenting your your thesis or argument or idea simply in a digestible way that people will understand and identify with and mm -hmm. ideally have an emotional connection with, right? Because when, when people are able to to build kind of yeah, an emotional link to a new idea, that is how you get that idea accepted, right? So, um, so you're trying to reach the the boomers so that maybe they can they'll know that you are thinking about lithium extraction and you'll be the first guy in their heads and that that's the goal it's not really to reach the younger engineers <laughs> and get them into into lithium extraction it's it's for everybody no it's for <laughs> it's for the it's for gen z it's for the boomers it's for everybody i think everybody has something to bring here i honor the boomers just as much as i honor gen z who doesn't know anything yet they will know a lot of things <laughs> soon right mm -hmm. they are the future right and i mean i'm i'm 28 i'm still at the beginning of my career but yeah I, I respect, I respect young people fundamentally, right? But because I'm not emotionally traumatized from my 30 year career where McKinsey came in every three years and fired 8% of the, the workforce, right? Like some of these, some of these guys, they had a rough, they had a rough career because of just toxic, shitty uh, corporate cultures, right? And I, and I, I honestly feel bad for them. I really do. But, but I haven't experienced that, but sorry, just to kind of close the gap on that. What I'm trying to say is they, they, they tend to not respect young people, right? And and treat them like idiots because basically their boss did that to them 20 or 30 mm -hmm. years ago, right? Yeah. And I, and I, I don't think that's thing. productive. Yeah. That's the same argument with the student loans. It's like, you know, if I paid student loans, you should pay student loans. It is, um. <laughs> it is, it is, it is the exact same thing. And psychologists, I think would call that intergenerational trauma. So, so a traumatized generation is trying to, is trying to traumatize another generation to, to, to kind of pass it on. Right. But but Gen Z and why I live for Gen Z and like why I love Gen Z and why I, yeah, I'm very interested in Gen Z. I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm a millennial, but I'm, you know, you know, I don't know how I'm classified, but I'm, who knows how I'm to classify in, these? Who knows anyways, but I'm interested in Gen Z because Gen Z, Gen Z isn't, isn't putting up with it. You know, mm. like Gen Z, Gen Z is like, no, we don't want to be traumatized. You know, like, no, we don't want to just pass down your shitty codes and rules. You know, mm -hmm. we want to kind of revisit fundamentals and build a better world. Whether Gen Z is going like, full scorched earth. And yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's actually <laughs> why a lot of them are going into startups because it's less hierarchical. You, you have more freedom, you have more responsibility. And, you know, I think that by going into maybe the boomer generations, by having bad bosses and what you were referring to doesn't give them, doesn't allow them to re reach their full potential. So I think, I, I think I now by doing yeah. startups, you can actually take on a ton of responsibility. So the super ambitious ones can can do that, crush it, and uh, really live up to it. I, I totally agree with that. But in terms of scorched earth, it's not about it's not about scorching the earth. They didn't scorch the earth, right? Mm -hmm. Who scorched the earth, right? Like the 2008 financial crisis, right? <laughs> that was that was the earth scorching event, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe hyperinflation now. Hyperinflation <laughs> in 2021. I mean, God knows what's going to happen, right? But but the point is, Gen Z is entering this world where there are no adults, right? The adults have just not proven themselves responsible or you know even default smart a lot of the time, right? And 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 it's not it's not that it's scorched earth. It's just like there's no earth beneath them. There's no foundation, right? In Reality. It feels like there's multiple realities. And this is this is yeah. one of my theories is that. I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you. There's fractured realities where, you know, blue might have a reality that they believe in and red might also have a reality. And you know what? Yeah. If you believe in either of those, both of them can be true. Like you can find enough proof and you just can't, you can't find all the information to accurately actually 
disprove one of them or, or find the right one, but uh, you can live fine in each reality. And I think that's yeah. where kind of where we're headed to. Yeah, I mean, we all, something I realized a couple of months ago is no one's right about everything. No mm -hmm. one, right? We all, we all express and carry and convey a bit of truth, right? We're all truth tellers, right? But, but, but no one has all the truth, literally nobody, mm -hmm. right? So, so it's important when you're kind of receiving information, whether it's data or emotional information or whatever from other people, it's important to, to, to really reflect on that information and think like, okay, what is their experience and what aspects of the information I'm receiving from them are, are valuable and true, right? And always mm -hmm. be critical and, uh, and what is false, right? Because again, like no, no one's right all the time, right? So maybe, maybe that's just another version of Ray Dalio's principles or something about Please. radical transfer. Yeah. So I mean, maybe all, I'm all just, of like, these things are that. just iterations of, of the previous things. We're standing um, so, on shoulders, aren't we? But, um, so, so what's yeah. one of like the, so, so your experiences direct lithium extraction, you're, you're making the, the memes about this. So what's your main thing that you want to get across about direct lithium extraction? So, so, so my, I, I would summarize my professional thesis that I, that I try to communicate through research articles and, you know, memes or whatever, as something along the lines of like, let's, let's actually take a step back and think through the kinds of environmental impacts that we are occurring and will occur in the battery value chain build out, mostly the upstream. And so, so I'm mostly focused on, on, on in the mining industry and, and chemical manufacturing industry and, and consulting across it with respect to um, lithium extraction technology. So kind of one of my keen interests is unlocking kind of new brine resources, which, which could potentially uh, re result in, in very low environmental impacts of extraction to make battery chemicals. And so, so just to, you're more bullish on brine versus hard rock. Could you kind of explain the differences and why you're more bullish on, or why you're focused on brine? So, so I think, I think multiple types of lithium resources will feed the battery value chain in the next 10 years. And, and just to give, just to give anyone listening a little bit of background on this. So, so lithium chemicals that are used to make cathode materials in lithium ion batteries, like those found in your Tesla or, or other electric vehicles, it's kind of the dominant battery technology platform now. Those, those lithium chemicals um, are, are principally made from two different types of natural resources. So, so the first is a mineral, like, like, a, like a solid crystal called spodumene, that is mostly mined in Western Australia. So, so it's dug, up, dug out of the ground, upgraded to remove things that are not spodumene, that do not contain lithium. And then a concentrate is sent to China, where it is processed into chemicals like lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide. Um, and is that, that the is, hard rock or, sorry, go that's ahead. That's hard rock. Exactly. Yeah. Colloquially, it's called hard rock, but, but there are other hard rocks that can produce lithium like lapidolite and petalite and zinwaldite and others. So I think it's fair to call all of those hard rocks, but, but, the, but the geology word that you would use is, is, is like a pegmatitic mineral. And, and that refers to the, the way that the resource is formed um, geologically. So, so that's where about half of, yeah. I was going to ask, how is that formed? Volcanoes? Uh, if I was... I, it's, 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 so basically, so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not a geologist. Okay. Totally so, fine. so don't, so don't quote me, but um, basically lithium, lithium doesn't like to bind with other minerals fundamentally for, for kind of physical chemistry reasons. So if you have a pocket of magma in the earth and the lithium will tend to segregate to the top. Um, to it's avoid, the lightest element. Cause it's, cause it's light and, and, and due to some of its chemistry. So it'll segregate to the top and concentrate and then when that pocket of magma kind of cools, it'll eventually form a pegmatite vein or, or dike, which is which is a technical mining term. So so yeah, so so pegmatite and, and spodumene is, is about half of the lithium production today. 
And then the other half is from brine. And uh, brine is just a, uh, is a salty water. So the lithium is, is dissolved in nature in a very high salt content. Much water. higher than the, the standard ocean. Much higher than the ocean. So the, the ocean is, is, is 3.5% by mass salt, mostly sodium chloride and mm -hmm. calcium. These lithium natural resource brines are typically between 10 and 30 percent salt okay so so you know three to ten times more salt than the ocean and much higher lithium concentration so the ocean has 0 0.2 ppm of lithium in it which is a very small quantity of lithium these mm -hmm. brines will have kind of tens to hundreds to thousands of ppm of lithium yeah, um, that's so yeah totally difference. different and that's huge why difference. you're you're always yeah. like lithium is everywhere but it's not easily extractable everywhere yeah, there's, there's a heck of a lot of lithium in the world, right? The ocean is the biggest lithium resource in the world, right? Lithium in the ocean. But, but the, question, the question isn't like, do we have enough lithium? The question is, which type of natural resource should we develop to, to extract lithium from using which technologies, right? And the technology is a variable that can change and it, and it does mm -hmm. change all the time. Right. There's, there are a number of different approaches to make lithium chemicals from natural resources that, that will incur which environmental impacts, right? So how do you quantify environmental impacts? And that's something I spent a lot of work on doing life cycle assessment with some really smart folks in London called Enviro and, and at what cost, right? So what will be the operating expense of, of, of liberating lithium from a mineral or making it concentrate from a brine? Um, and then eventually converting it to lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. So, so it's this like, it's this incredible complex phase space right that that requires input from geologists and hydrogeologists and you know environmental experts and chemical engineers and chemists and mechanical engineers and and, and, and market experts and you know all, all these different skill sets come together to answer that question right that, that complex question for sure uh, so then why are you bullish on brine just to pull the thread on that so I, I don't I don't um, I don't strongly favor brine necessarily over over pegmatitic hard rock minerals. I mean, um, fundamentally, they're all just you know matter sitting in nature. I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't like one more than the other. But 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 before before I kind of answer that question and like kind of the trade offs between them, I, I'd also add that there's there's a third category of resources which is sedimentary clays. So from from Oregon all the way down to Mexico. There's kind of different deposits of, of dirt, really. So, so it doesn't look like a crystal or, or a mineral. It looks more like a, a sediment and it, it flows. And if you put it in water, it breaks up. It's mm -hmm. a very different kind of geology. And, and this and was in the news because of Tesla. This was in the news because of Tesla, because they, they, they report to be developing their own sedimentary clay project in Nevada. But there, there's, there's plenty of activity in Nevada focused on sedimentary clays now. It, it's just, there just isn't any commercial production from sedimentary clays yet. But okay. um, in 20, by 2030, there probably will be almost certainly. So, so in terms of what is my favorite resource, right? I don't, I, I wouldn't say I have a favorite resource, but, but, but what I do, what, what I do prioritize and what I do value and what I do think is important is minimizing the environmental impact of lithium chemical manufacturing from natural resources, period, mm -hmm. right? Because this, you know, the lithium market's going to explode by eight or 10 X in the next decade, right? I mean, it's just like 90% of it doesn't exist yet. Right, it's tremendous growth that is happening really right now, and and it's happening because of because of EVs, right, and because of the electrification revolution and the energy transition, right. So uh, I, I think I read somewhere that thirty percent of the lithium that will be used in by twenty thirty hasn't been developed yet. 
It's yeah, it, the majority of, of lithium values coming out of natural resources today, or sorry, in 2030, the, the vast majority of, of, of that lithium doesn't exist yet. Those projects have not been built. Those mines have not been dug. Those, those brines have not, those brine fields have not been developed. Those wells have not been drilled. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a tremendous amount of, you know, moving around large quantities of, of material ahead of us in the next decade. And, and there's a whole bunch of folks working on that, you know, the mining and chemical industries. So so yeah, so to kind of answer your question, so 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 I think it's important that the energy transition works, right? We're we're doing this to to avoid catastrophic climate change caused mm -hmm. by accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? Like like we're, we're not anti CO two emission even, right? We're anti CO two accumulation. We can't let it accumulate. The concentration can't build up because that's what causes the greenhouse effect. So 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 in that respect, you know, we have to make sure that the the supply chain of manufacturing those batteries is decarbonized as well, right? Because, you know, there are natural resources being developed now that, that have never been looked at before, such as sedimentary clays and, and other types of brine and other types of pegmatites that are, that are lower grade and higher impurity than the types of resources that used to be processed into lithium chemicals kind of, you know, if, if infinity time ago is 20 years ago. So, so yeah, very different, you know, the energy transition has, has, has created a transition in the way we develop natural resources. And there are um, environmental impact kind of factors to that. There are technology uh, um, development and, and deployment factors to that. And it's, it's, I, I think it's critical that we're, we're monitoring and understanding uh, all of those kind of developments that are happening simultaneously so that we, we really understand it and kind of ensure that the energy transition is worth it, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm making lithium hydroxide in, in China and emitting you know, some exorbitant quantity of CO2 because I'm, I'm burning coal or, or whatever I'm, or whatever it is, then it doesn't matter if the lithium atom in, in, the, in the Tesla in Norway, <laughs> right, isn't emitting sure. CO2 in Norway, right? Because mm -hmm. the atmos it's, 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 we all share this atmosphere, right? The boomers, the Gen Z, the, you know, the squirrels, the humans, the whales, right? Like we depend on, on that, on the common atmosphere, right? So yeah, the, the CO2 molecule doesn't care where it's emitted. <laughs> so you're mostly focused on uh, making sure that the new technologies developed are de decarbonized or lowest carbon impact. So do you focus on brine because it has the most potential to reduce the amount of carbon emitted per amount of lithium? So, so historically back in ancient times, like a year ago, since I, <laughs> since I started, since I, since I started kind of consulting independently across the lithium industry, I was, I was kind of more focused on brines because fundamentally in a brine, the lithium is already in solution. Whereas in, in a pegmatitic hard rock, you actually conventionally have to calcine the spodumene at a thousand degrees Celsius first mm -hmm. in order to get the lithium out to get it in solution. Right. So mm -hmm. there's a thermodynamic barrier that needs to be overcome. But but my work has evolved to looking at how do we decarbonize mining of spodumene as well. Right. And and the reason why is because a heck of a lot of spodumene mines will be built for, for a variety of reasons that are geopol geopolitical and, and environmental and, and cost-based. And 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 so so I I I've realized, you know, it's also super important that we decarbonize spodumene mining because it's going to happen, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I accept reality. Right. And, and I want to meet and I want to meet reality. Right. And, 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 and do whatever I can to help people decarbonize their processes in their minds and understand mm -hmm. the options and the trade-offs, because that that is also critical. So so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's like either or I would say that I would say that all all different types of natural resources are being developed to make lithium chemicals. And, um, and we should decarbonize all of them. So when you were discussing the hard rock, you said you said that it had to be heated up so that it frees the lithium. 
Now, this also is similar to geothermal brines, right? Where you need the higher temperatures so that the lithium is easier to be extracted, from what I understand. Uh, can you, yeah, I'm just vaguely asking about geothermal brines. Yeah. So, so, so I would say those are kind of the, the, the heat in both cases has fundamentally different functions. So, so if you're using a calcination and a roasting to liberate lithium from a spodumene concentrate, you're doing that because that is literally the, the quantity and type of energy that needs to be put into the kind of material system in order to liberate the lithium. In a, in a geothermal brine context, and just to kind of, you know, at a high level kind of explain, these, these are brines that are taken from between three to 10,000 feet deep. And they're, they're typically between kind of 50 to 150 degrees Celsius after heat is taken out to produce electricity using relatively mature technology developed in, in California and, and, and around the world. So the Sultan Sea has a geothermal brine field just south of the Sultan Sea. There are actually north of the Sultan Sea too. There are geothermal energy plants all over the place. And, and what those plants are doing is they're taking brine, so salty water, from between six and 8,000 feet deep and potentially a bit lower in some cases. And they're producing the brine, high pressure and high temperature. They're flashing off steam. So the, when you reduce the pressure, steam comes off of the brine and that steam can be used to produce electricity. And then after that brine with, with all the salt in it has produced steam which produces electricity, it, it's, it's mineralized, right? It's salty and it, it's relatively relatively salty compared to other brines actually. That, that brine actually does have lithium in it and it has, it has zinc and manganese and, and iron and silica and a whole bunch of other things too. But there are currently a number of real commercial projects focused on trying to get the lithium out of that brine in the Sultan Sea right now. And I, I think at least one of them will probably succeed. I'm not gonna name names, but I think one, at least one of them will succeed. So, so that, that's a really interesting concept because you, first of all, you're producing low carbon power simultaneously as you produce lithium chemicals, right? So, so that's, that's attractive in the sense of, you know, the energy transition that we're undergoing right now. And, but it's also attractive because the, the footprint is so small, like the physical footprint on the surface of the earth, right? Like you have like, a, you have a chemical plant with, with, a, with a, basically a stream of brine flowing through it. You use a direct lithium extraction technology, which is, which is the use of a kind of engineered material to selectively remove lithium from the brine and then leave everything else. And then you're putting it back underground. Everything mm -hmm. that's not lithium, you put back underground. That is the concept. And now, you don't add what, many materials to it or chemicals? Or? In, in some cases, you do need to modify brine a bit. And I won't go into details exa of exactly what you need to do. In, but but there, are, there are some components of the brine that can cause issues for some technologies. And that's, that's, not, a, that's not a rule, right? It, it is a, a trend, I would say. But, but, but based on my observations, the brine chemistry modification is, is probably needed in, in most cases. So, so yeah, so that's the idea behind geothermal lithium. I think it's a really interesting idea. You know, it's interesting to note though, that like a, a geothermal, like there is literally no geothermal lithium on the market today. It doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is, really? this is a, this is a mid to mid to high TRL, you know, technology readiness level what is, what um, is, okay. technology approach. Okay. So, so um, is it because it was a new technology approach or why wasn't this available before? So two reasons. So first of all, a, a number of new technologies have been developed and, and really improved significantly over the last five to 10 years, which, which enabled geothermal lithium in some cases. That's, that's the first part. But then the second part is that 
we just didn't need the lithium, right? You know, but before the but before the the lithium ion battery kind of story, right? Lithium was used to make to make glass and and lube and you know kind of I don't want to I don't want to be mean to glass and lube, but they were just they were not just small, a ton of things, yeah. They were it was a small it was a very small industry, right? We we didn't need three million tons per year of lithium carbonate. We only needed you know a hundred thousand tons per year. So. So, so this is this is kind of like a textbook economic geology transition. So I'm gonna try to visualize this graph. I don't know if you can add it later or something. But like uh -huh. on the x-axis you have lithium concentration in a resource, and on the y-axis you have quantity of lithium stored in a resource at that concentration. You know, like I was saying earlier, most of the lithium in the world, a lot of lithium in the world is in the ocean, right? And so there's a ton of lithium in the ocean. So at a really low concentration, there's a huge amount of lithium. And then only only at a couple in, in in a couple little instances like the Salar de Atacama in Chile and, and some other Salars and the Greenbushes mine in, in Australia, you have really ultra high grade resources that are kind of freaks of nature, right? Okay. And you know, where do you think the humans kind of started extracting lithium? <laughs> For right? sure. Obviously, they tried to they they identified where are the freaks of nature, right? The highest lithium concentration resources, because it's easiest to get the lithium out of them, it's cheapest too, right? So mm -hmm. so what happens though when you increase demand is yeah, you've, you've tapped all the high lithium concentration resources, right? So you've got to start going down the axis. And I don't know if mm -hmm. this is materializing correctly on the screen. But for, like, for, you, for those watching the YouTube video, uh, you can see him <laughs> <laughs> doing the graph. So as, as you go, as you, as you need to produce more and more lithium and, and you, kind of, you, you kind of tap out and, and cannot produce any more lithium from you know, the, the freaks of nature, you have to start developing lower grade lithium resources. Right. So, so geothermal you know, brine has less less lithium concentration than uh, these other places, but we're starting to do it. So so does the grade for geothermal brines is it is it a significantly lower, or why are we extracting it now? And will this be one of the faster growing resources? The reason that I'm asking this is I have a ton of young engineers that are probably looking to start a startup eventually, like or join startups. Where should they be looking to? to jump in on the supply chain. Yeah. I think geothermal tackles these two things by producing energy and lithium. So, so that's really great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so first, so, so, so three part answer. So first of all, three part um, question. if, if any of your listeners, three part question for three part answer. If any of your listeners or viewers want to learn more about the space, there's a ton of free information on my website that they can access and, and, and learn from and play around with. There's, there's a heck of a lot there to kind of That'll get you started on understanding the lithium industry. Cool. And 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 then if, if they are particularly kind of energetic and 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 have some interesting questions or ideas, you know, please feel free to reach out. It's super easy to reach me on on Twitter and um, and LinkedIn and email and, and different avenues. And so so yeah, if you have any anything interesting that you want to share, you know, feel free to reach out. And um, if you're looking for a job or thinking about a startup idea or whatever it may be, I, I'm all ears and, and I'm here to help because, because again, I, you know, I, I believe in young people and I, I believe that young people have a lot to bring to, to the space. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is to answer your, your kind of technical question about brine resources. So are geothermal brines low grade? Yes. Compared to kind of conventional, historically developed brines. So, you know, like the Salar de Atacama in Northern Chile has, you know, Probably the wells that are pumping brine as we speak are pulling something like 1,500 to 2,000 ppm parts per million of lithium brine. That's very high. That is exceptional. And I, it, I'm pretty sure that's the highest lithium grade brine on the planet, at, at large scale at least. And so, so, so 
let's call that 2000 ppm. There's, there's been a lot of development activity and, and by development activity, I mean commercial projects, like people are actually trying to build, you know, mines and chemical plants. There's been a lot of commercial activity on Argentine brines, kind of on the other side of the Andes. And a lot of those brines have concentrations in the range of 300 to 800 ppm. So mm -hmm. we've, we've already gone from 2000 ppm, 1500 ppm to about half to a third of that in Argentina. 30%, yeah. Um, okay. And some of those projects, some of those projects use uh, DLE technologies, or one of them does, uh, uses a DLE technology in their process. It's kind of like a hybrid DLE technology that also kind of leverages evaporation. And, 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 and other new projects will use DLE technologies because they're just lower grade resources and the evaporation uh, in, on our, in Argentina is, is typically less than in Chile. Chile. The Atacama Desert is the driest place in the world. And so, so evaporative lithium brine processing doesn't work as well in Argentina. It, 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 still, it still works and some projects will be highly successful using evaporative techniques, but it's it's not as robust and, and as reliable as it is in Chile. It rains more in Argentina. So so that's your second question. And then and then to answer your third question, which is like, where should people be looking for jobs and, and looking to have impact in the lithium industry or the battery metal industry? Or or really, you know, I, I would I would I would propose to, to think about kind of all of industry, right? Because mm. some of the some of the decarbonization problems that are related to technology and chemical processing are, 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 are just, they're, they're chemical processing issues, not necessarily lithium processing issues. And I think a good example is it's high grade heat, right? So if I need a thousand degrees Celsius in processing of something, right? Whether it's a kiln and I'm roasting a rock or sediment or whatever, historically that was met using fossil fuels, right? And, and today, it is met using fossil fuels. And in the future, it, it will still be met largely using methane, right? And, and other, other hydrocarbons. I think one of the really significant technological priorities of decarbonizing industry, whether that's chemical manufacturing or mining or, or kind of these sectors that, that I spend most of my time in is, is heat, electrifying heat specifically. We need to find a way to take in, you know, high voltage, DC power and convert it to a thousand degrees Celsius air, right? Okay. And 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 make that make that that heat transfer work well and, and solve a number of problems associated with electrifying heat. So so that so like that so is would that be an electrical engineer? Um, How does that process I, work? Or yeah, so so electrifying heat. So if I if I tried to if I tried to scale up electric like rotary kiln like a, a, an electric rotary kiln. By the way, I'm not an expert in this. Let me just say, so I might- That's totally fine. I, I mean, these stupid. are the new fields, right? So- I might sound stupid, but hey, I'm not afraid to sound stupid every once in a while. <laughs> so so, so there's probably issues with, with heat transfer from, from the, the source of the heat to the material inside the kiln. There's, there's probably issues with material of construction of the heating elements. So I'm, I'm not familiar with all of the heating element options for, for heating something up to a thousand degrees Celsius, but okay. you know, you can, you can imagine if I need a thousand degrees Celsius inside a rotary kiln, that's basically a long tube that rotates, then I'm probably going to need slightly higher temperature or maybe a lot higher temperature kind of in my heating element that's part of the kiln or on the outside of the, of the kiln or something like this. Right. So, so I don't have a thousand degrees Celsius material construction problem. Maybe I have a, a 1500 degrees Celsius I material see. construction problem, right? So again, I'm, I'm not an expert in electric. You don't know the answer. You just know that this is a problem. 
I, I don't know the answer, but I do know the question. Yeah, um, no, that's I, honestly, that's great. That that means that it's uh, right for a startup. 100%. And, and I would also say, I, I think it's crucial to work with industry players too, if you're trying to scale up something new. Like if you're really in like, you know, ideation research phase, don't try to talk to big companies because they might just try to steal your idea. Like pr prove it out in kind of mini pilot scale first, for sure. But when you really start to hit on something that appears to be valuable, like having having friends in the industry that you're like trying to like disrupt or, or participate in is invaluable. It is so important to have a good network in the industry that you're trying to participate in. And and you know you know th that's where that's where the boomers kind of have an advantage, right? Because I was just gonna say they, that's where just, LinkedIn comes in. That's no, where LinkedIn to, comes in. We need to start 100%. the Twitter uh, DLE space. You know, we need startup uh, Twitter, oh. tech Twitter. We need DLE Twitter. If you, if you are listening to this <laughs> and you have DLE comments, please tweet them. <laughs> please tweet at us. Just just don't give me a blue check mark. Like the day I get a blue check For mark sure. is the day that I am calcified and I should just be for sure like that that means you've you've you're disposed of at the end of your career uh, for sure <laughs> <laughs> um I should just graduate to something to, to Facebook or something mm -hmm. yeah I mean, we did talk about Facebook right I mean you know <laughs> I, I think you'll agree with me nothing happens on Facebook now right I mean Facebook is like a race uh, yeah I never um, use Facebook uh but... <laughs> so, so before so so I know you have a hard cap at eleven thirty your time so before we kind of uh, wrap up I wanted to ask you what, you know, I got a lot of questions about this. I've previously made videos on Deep Green and recently it, it was discussed that they're uh, looking for a SPAC with SOAC. And I was just wondering, have you have you looked into Deep Green? Do you know much about their lithium extraction or their materials extraction? For context, they're mining polymetallic nodules at the bottom of the ocean floor. Uh, what do you think about this potential acquisition or company? Yeah, so so I am, I'm a little familiar with Deep Green. I I know some of the folks who who worked on on their project. I I don't have any contact with Deep Green, so my my perspective on this is very kind of virgin and you That's know great. just inter, internet contact. What I I am I am interested in what they're doing. I would say and, and and just for context, so they're you know they're trying to like suck up these kind of like rocks of, of manganese, nickel, and cobalt at, at the bottom of the ocean, the Clarion Clipperton Belt in the in the Pacific kind of equatorial Pacific, kind of west of Mexico. And I'm interested in this because obviously we need the nickel and, and the cobalt. Um, it's, I think they're mostly manganese, I don't remember, but um, we, we, mm -hmm. we need manganese, but not maybe not all the manganese. So I don't know how exactly they're gonna market their manganese. But 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 my main contact with them was reading their life cycle assessment. So they, they put together a very professional LCA report, which they published, and I think it's available online, where they, they quantified their environmental impacts using best practice methodologies. And I, I think that was important because there, there's been kind of conversations around the risks associated with deep sea mining, right? Sucking up these, these nodules from the ocean floor, which potentially brings along with it, you know, other sediments or, or things that are potentially alive that, that could kill those things that are alive. So, so I think the LCA that they produced um, was very professional and, 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 and supportive of, of their kind of thesis about what they're trying to do. And so, so, so if it's between, you know, sucking up nodules from, from, from the middle of the Pacific versus, you know, tearing up rainforest in, in Indonesia or New Caledonia, right? You know, I, 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 I really don't have anything against deep sea ocean worms. I swear I don't, right? <laughs> I, I, like, I, I think it is extremely important and valuable that we study their, their biology, their biology and their physiology and, and identify like, are there compounds in their skin that we can turn into medicine or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm, I'm super attuned to that reality, but extraction and producing these materials that end up in our, our lithium ion batteries and our Teslas, or, you know, or wherever we want to use them, your cell phone, mm -hmm. et cetera. 
always carries environmental impact. Let me say that yep. again. <laughs> yeah. The production of materials that go into your batteries, whether it's your electric vehicle or your phone or whatever, always has environmental impact. The, the, the point is not to eliminate the environmental impact because you can't, you literally cannot, right? The point is to quantify and control and reduce the environmental impact. It is a minimization function. It is not a multiply by zero function. For sure. Right? So, so um, this is a great way to uh, reduce the environmental impact. So according it, to the LCA- It looks like it, yes. So it, if, I, if I was to say this in, in what I think are the best technical terms, according to their LCA for the impact categories that they quantified with, with, their, with the consulting company that they did it with, there are impact reduction opportunities for deep sea mining compared to tearing up rainforest in Indonesia. Okay, in, in terms of bio, biodiversity and, and other impact categories. So, so totally agree. So, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't think anyone cares about, about my approval of what they're trying <laughs> to do or not. Maybe someone does, but, but what I would say is like, that is, that is the right um, way to approach this question is, is to quantify and understand and, and compare, right? Totally. Because just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad. And I, I think it's really problematic that they faced a lot of resistance just because it's new and just because it hasn't been done before. You know, I don't know what, what like planet- People are scared of uh, the like, ocean, uh, mining people, in the ocean. Well, people but, are, uh, people so, are scared of mining the ocean. And I don't think that that is a super mature position. You know, I think it is a mature, smart position to say, let's study the biology of the animals that live in the deep sea ocean, 100%, like literally everyone's on board. But just being objectively against ocean Mining, I think, is not is not the most mature kind of best way to think about it. For sure. So, so I have one last question. You know, I kind of wanted to get more into ba your background, but but in in lieu of that, that that would take a little bit of time. I can, I, I can push my call back by fifteen minutes. I mean, I mean, uh, that's totally up to you. I I, yeah. I had really two questions. You know, I kind of wanted to talk about your background, how you started. You know, Lilac, and you you were a chemical engineer and philosophy major, and then you started Lilac, and then you started Jade Cove, and what the future of that looks like. And then I guess if you push your call back, I, I, I'll save that question for the last one. But before that, I wanted to ask also, you know, other than this electricity to heat problem, what is the other billion dollar, like, what would you, what, what's your like wish for- What are the, the other, what are the budget? other questions? The other yeah. questions I'm asking, yeah. Okay, so, 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 so my story at a super high level, so I am from the country north of Toronto, about an hour north. I grew up, I grew up kind of in like playing in mud in the fields building forts and diverting rivers and collecting rocks. And so it actually, it actually was surprisingly formative. And I, I, I graduated from high school and then went for my undergrad in Montreal at McGill, where I, I was going to study physics and philosophy. And someone's mom was like, what are you going to do with that? So I switched to chemical engineering and philosophy. So, so yeah, so I, I did, that was my major and minor. And throughout undergrad, I was doing academic uh, and industrial research in wastewater treatment and water chemistry. And so I've been studying kind of water related processes for my entire adult life, like a decade basically. And I, I but I, I kind of got tired of cleaning up other people's messes. So I went for a PhD at Northwestern in Chicago to study CO2 conversion heterogeneous catalysis. So this is the idea of, of using kind of special materials that, that, that make CO2 plus hydrogen reactions move much faster to make certain products. And so I, I thought I was interested in this concept of, of the solar fuels kind of cycle where 
you would use something like methanol or DMO or formaldehyde in, in, a, in a kind of new kind of engine and combust it with oxygen and release CO2 and then capture it again, split water to make hydrogen and oxygen, re-react it and, and repeat using renewable energy presumably. But, and, and that was really fun. Like I built like, I built like a high pressure, high temperature reactor and a gas chromatography machine. And I learned so much about physical chem chemistry and, and analytical procedures and all these things that, that I, I still, I still use today. It's, it was very helpful, but, but I realized that the solar fuel cycle was probably not a good way to store energy for ground transport. Lithium-ion batteries and electric vehicles are, is, is a thousand times better. And, and that applies to the hydrogen fuel cell concept too, by the way, if anyone wants to Google what I'm talking about hydrogen. Yeah. <laughs> just had to share on hydrogen a little bit. But, but anyway, so I, I, I left my PhD, well, to back up, I, I was hired in grad school to run a seminar series that was put on by the engineering PhD students for the business school, pretty much. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone was invited, but it was like mostly like Kellogg MBA students who didn't know anything about technology or energy technology or anything. Of course. And I, I was hired to, to take that over from a graduating PhD student who was, who was finishing his PhD in material science uh, named Dave. Super brilliant guy, very insightful. And, 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 I, and I started chatting with Dave about where the lithium was gonna come from for, for, for manufacturing all these batteries for electric vehicles. And he, he basically invited me to meet in the library in grad school. And this was, this was in like 2016. So this was uh, five years ago now. And, 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 and he, he told me a bit about some ideas he was having around, around lithium extraction. And then, you know, he, he essentially, he asked me if I wanted to work on it. And I said, absolutely. This is fascinating. So, so that, that project that, that really started in 2016 and it turned into Lilac Solutions. So I left my PhD with a master's to, to help start Lilac. And yeah, so, so that became Lilac and, and Lilac raised uh, a, a $20 million series A in announced in February, 2020. That was led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates' climate fund. So that was that was kind of my my entry point into lithium and and mining, and and that was an opportunity where that was a place where I taught myself a lot about a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. So we were like a three three four person startup at, at the start, right? So you know I was I was the only engineer really, and so I I built all of these kind of automated systems to to demonstrate the technology, which which is requisite for for proving the, the value proposition of the technology. So I taught myself like how to program like PLCs and how to do kind of basic electrical engineering, like nothing sophisticated nice. at that time. I'm sure it's evolved since I left, but but I taught myself a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff around like physical chemistry and hydrometallurgy, which is really like aqueous phase mineral processing. And, and it was a lot of fun, you know, a lot like sleeping in the lab a bunch of times, making sure the robots were doing what they were supposed to do and taking samples and stuff. And very, very early stage startup kind of. It's a um, common theme. Aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> well, when, when it's got to work, it's got to work, right? You sleep at the mm -hmm. lab. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so, 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 so that was my time of life, but, but I, I really wanted to have a broader impact um, across lithium and across battery metals and, and beyond. So I left, I left actually almost exactly two years ago to, to kind of start my own company, consulting across lithium. And part of what I did over the last two years was, was develop a really deep global insight into all the different types of direct lithium extraction technologies. And so, so that research and, and that understanding and that for kind of first principles informed insight has, has, has created a lot of value for, for some of the folks I work with. So I'm, I'm super proud of that. And, and a big part of also what I've been doing over, over the last two years is I, I mentioned Minvaro in London a little, a little while back is working with them on life cycle assessment. And, and, and it, it, I'm working with this really smart guy named Rob who did his PhD in, in, L, in LCA of mining in the UK. 
And we've been, we've been doing life cycle assessments in the lithium industry for projects and development. So, so these are folks who are trying to build lithium mines or, or, you know, lithium brine extraction projects or, or, you know, or lithium processing facilities. And they want to understand what are the hotspots in their environmental impact and kind of profile, right? And so, you know, what are the top three or five things that drive their CO2 intensity or water use or whatever it may be? So, so, so we build a life cycle assessment model, which informs them of where they kind of need to look to, to mitigate those impacts. So, you know, my, my kind of mission is, is to build the best battery supply chain possible because <laughs> we all, we deserve that. The world deserves that, right? Like For we sure. owe it, we owe it to the people buying electric vehicles to, to do that. Right. And, 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 and I really feel like Pro is really operationalizing a, a, a really important part of that, which is to quantify and understand environmental impacts. And then, you know, kind of part two is, well, okay, I have, I have an impact because of technology XYZ in my process. What are alternative technologies? that I could use to perform that function in my process, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this kind of brings me to part, your, your second question, I guess, right? What's um, the golden fleece? <laughs> the, the, well, the, the, the interesting opportunities, in my opinion, are, are those which reduce environmental impacts, right? So whether that's reducing CO2 emissions of a process like electrifying or, you know, other schemes for, I'm just kind of like brainstorming off the top sure. of my, off the, off my cut here. That's the best like, way to do these. Like, other, uh, basically other schemes to produce low-grade heat that don't require fossil fuels, right? Anywhere, anywhere that diesel or, or methane or coal um, or, or, or oil or, or any fossil fuel is used in a process or a mine, identify what are the opportunities to, to remove it from the process, right? That's the algorithm. That's the objective function. So, so, so that's a big part of it. And, and then water is a big part of it too. So in, in mining and mineral processing, you always use fresh water, always. Anyone who tells you that they don't use any water in their process either, you know, doesn't understand their own process or, or they don't understand it yet or they're lying. It's, it's one of those two. And so it'll always use water. So, so the goal is not to use no water because it's, it's pretty much impossible in almost all cases. The, the goal is to minimize the amount of water we use, right? And, and potentially use, you know, maybe brackish water instead of fresh water, for example, things like that, right? Because like a brackish water, which has maybe 0.5% salt instead of fresh water, which has 0.1% salt. Right, like you can't use that brackish water for agriculture, or you know, mm-hmm. animals probably aren't drinking it in, in most cases. And you know, like if you can sub out fresh water for brackish water, right? That's an improvement in terms of the process's impact on water availability for animals and people and agriculture and, and plants, right? So, so CO two and water are really the main kind of pain points in, in lithium processing and and in in all mining and, and mineral processing. So, so yeah, so so things which which reduce CO2 emissions and which reduce water use are, are valuable. And, and, and we could use some more breakthrough technologies on both those fronts. And, and, and yeah, again, if, if anyone wants to reach out with, with ideas or questions on that, you know, ha- happy to chat. I'm, I'm always happy to kind of help energetic, motivated young people with, with interesting ideas to succeed because, you know, so many people have helped me along the way. And, uh, and it, it's, it's, really, it's really a pleasure to be able to kind of give back and really start giving back as soon as I can. Um, For sure. So, so, so it's not, not like a Holy Grail <laughs> membrane, but that, that's where, where can they find you on Twitter? How can people find you online? First of all, I would just say like thinking in terms of Holy Grails is not the right framework. Like there's a lot of like little step change improvements that would, sure. that are useful. So yeah, so always be skeptical of people who are talking about Holy Grails because usually 
usually they're kind of full shit. But that's what I say. So so how to how to find me on the internet? You can find me on on Twitter at Alex Jade Cove, and I, I guess you'll probably like internet this somehow. But I'll put um, this I'm findable on Twitter. You can you can find me on on LinkedIn, and you know you're welcome to reach out or, or add me or whatever whatever. And uh, and my email is is on my website, so you know it, I, I make it as easy as possible to access me. So for sure. Awesome. Well, Alex, I appreciate it. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how Jade Cove plays out and hopefully we'll have you on the pod next time again and definitely looking forward to it. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Jack. Yeah, we, we're going to have to talk someday about terraforming the Sultan Sea because I am, I am so interested in this as well. You know, you can either dry it up and control the dust along the way or somehow put more water in it, right? And mm -hmm. you know who's really good at doing things like that? The mining and chemical industry. Right. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to, uh, we're going to have to put some more thoughts towards that. We're going to have to do a podcast uh, of, of brainstorming, terraforming the Sultan Sea. <laughs> yeah. We should, we should just like, yeah, invite a bunch of like funny rando technologists and just shoot the shit on, you know, how, like, where's the water going to come from? Like, we can't, like, the Colorado River is topped out. That's not an option. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, another day. My idea with the clouds, but you have to make sure that they rain. We were talking about this, right? Because there's there's evaporation ponds just like north east of there where they're where they're making industrial minerals. So mm -hmm. I just I really don't think they would be happy if you exactly. eat a bunch of clouds like to to like rain. And you were off sea, by just then, a like, few miles. <laughs> and you were off by like yeah, hundred kilometers or whatever it is. You know, you're gonna you're gonna eat into someone's profits eventually there. So you know for sure. <laughs> but yeah, but but maybe there's a mechanism to control the accuracy of making it rain. Who knows? I'd need to look into that more, but we'll have to do a podcast on brainstorming that. Either way, I really appreciate the time. All the links are in the description. Go follow uh, Alex on Twitter. Go follow me on Twitter, Twitter, NASDAQ underscore underscore, and uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Okay, cool. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Bye. Bye.